Welcome, everybody, Zastoriche, to the Haunted Hacker podcast. Anya, what uh, what number do you want this to be? I usually let my guests pick the number of the uh, of the session. So pick a number between, I don't know, 70 and 90. Okay, nice. Okay, 81. 81? Okay, 81 it is. Um, so today we have Anya Vatsatskaya, um, and she works for Flashpoint. And before we get started, I'll do a little bit of update on uh, what's going on and, and kind of the news. Um, so I have, uh, I just got done with a talk in London um, for Euroclear, which was awesome. It was uh, a thousand attendees, which was ginormous for a virtual event, I thought. Um, really good, uh, really good conversation. And um, there's a lot of discussion back and forth. I wanted to thank Richard Atkins from Euroclear for having me. Um, other than that, not a whole lot of updates going on. We have the Haunted Hacker one-year anniversary on the 30th that will go through the 31st uh, 24-hour podcast. Not really sure who all the guests will be, um, but I'm sure they'll all be good. And this will be my last podcast in this location. And I'll be moving to a 100-year-old building in downtown, wherever I'm at. Um, so with that being said, um, I'll introduce uh, Anya and you can tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of your journey and, and what you're doing now and we'll go from there. Sure, yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the journey, I guess my journey is uh, not uh, usual for, for the cyber people. Whenever you talk about people coming to cyber, they, I was hacking the computers since I was three, you know, my dad brought me this old Mac and um, I was playing with it. When I was a toddler, uh, not like that at all. So um, I was born in Russia. Um, and when I was born, I'm not that old, but because <laughs> it is Russia, when I was born, we didn't even have a TV. Uh, so I remember, uh, you know, when I was four, we got our first black and white TV. And uh, of course, there was no, no computers. So um, um, the computers got introduced when I was uh, in high school and um, uh, we played a turtle game. That was the first programming game. Probably people know about that. That's how everybody starts programming. Mm -hmm. uh, my uh, brother was uh, really into computers and uh, he played um, Mario Kart video game. Uh, so one day um, I decided to see what it is and... Um, then um, when I gained consciousness, it was already <laughs> the end of the day. So this game set me. And um, I decided it's probably not the best thing for me. Um, as uh, I was interested in people and animals, actually. So um, moving forward, uh, my uh, first education was in biology, biochemistry, uh, slash psychology. So that's what I was into. Um, and actually my first career was in that too. So I was very interested in animals and people and how brain works. Um, and I guess that brought me to cybersecurity eventually because uh, I'm a very curious person. Um, and um, every job that I ever held, I would outgrow really quickly. So eventually I decided to think, what can I do that I would not outgrow? And that brought me to cybersecurity and then um, I got my second master's while already in the United States. 
um, skipping a big chunk of my life uh, to not bore the listeners. But uh, yeah, so I decided to get into cybersecurity. Um, I did the master's. And so while I was doing the master's, I started my first job. Uh, I worked at SOC. Uh, and that's where I kind of learned um, that uh, the interesting thing in cyber is that uh, we divide people a lot. So they have like a blue team and they have a red team. Um, and um, my idea was that that's probably not the most efficient way of doing things. And um, um, that was my first attempt of uh, building the purple team. I think now they're more popular. Um, the um, thing that surprised me was that um, it seemed that um, the management or the people who own the company, you know, they, um, they were not very interested in intelligence itself. Uh, so the money would go to the blue team and the money would go to the application security, you know, and a little bit to the red team. But um, in terms of um, hunting or doing the intelligence, that seemed to be a luxury. Uh, so, yeah, that was the beginning of my understanding what's going on in cyber, uh, my journey. So um, after SOC, I worked uh, for Trend Micro. I worked with Zero Day Vulnerabilities team. So that was extremely interesting. You know, um, I was writing rules for um, IDS and IPS. But still, again, um, intelligence was the one that interested me the most because, you know, I thought, so why are we reacting to things versus actually trying to do something against it first? And that brought me to Flashpoint um, because uh, Flashpoint is specifically um, focused on intelligence uh, part of it. So uh, that appealed uh, really uh, to my sense of curiosity and to just, um, I'm a very logical person, so, you know, if you're constantly uh, playing a game of whack-a-mole uh, right. with the threat, that something is wrong. So, um, yeah, and right now at Flashpoint, I'm on the hunt team, and the hunt team is actually hunt for threats. So, um, uh, we look at what's going on in illicit communities, um, you know, we parse this intelligence, we look at what trends are uh, are going on there so we can actually advise um, people on uh, what to protect. Um, yeah, my recent projects are all related to ransomware since it's such a big thing and I have a lot to say about the ransomware. <laughs> I have lots of opinions about it and uh, um, I just want to say that they, uh, the opinions are my own, uh, not necessarily any of my employers. Uh, so just want to preface it but I think there are some things that we can change in the landscape to actually um, to not feed the monster. Absolutely. And it's uh, interesting that, that uh, you're interested in ransomware. Um, I'm also really interested in ransomware and I've got my own theories we can talk about later. Um, I found it really interesting. You went to, uh, you went to college at uh, UT in Austin. Um, you took some courses there or taught there. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I taught there. So, taught there. Um, uh, yeah, I, I got my master's um, into the one of the online um, mm -hmm. schools in the Capital Technology University. They actually have campus mm -hmm. uh, and they have online. So they're the ones that usually supply brains to the government. Right. And then I taught um, a boot camp at the University of Texas. Um, nice. 
this is a very popular uh, avenue now for people uh, who want to get into cyber mm -hmm. um, versus doing a four-year degree or master's. You can get a boot camp and actually get an entry-level position. So that was very interesting. I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah, Texas, uh, I spent most of my childhood in Texas. Um, and that's where I entered into the uh, military was from Texas. So I've got a, a fondness for a uh, university of Texas, especially hook em horns. Um, but yeah, that, that's, uh, it brings back, uh, memories of my childhood and, and from home. Um, so you have an interesting view on ransomware. So you and I both share some commonalities, um, and the, the idea of intelligence, right? So people come to me all the time and say, Hey, how can I make my company better? I have, uh, I have a defense platform I use, I have pen testers, um, and we make sure we patch. And I said, well, you know, look at it as like a stool, right? And you have to have all the legs to the stool, but you're missing one. And that missing leg is intelligence. You, you have to have some sort of intelligence to, to be able to round out the security picture. Um, and I spent, uh, you know, some time, a couple of years actually doing intelligence for, for companies, uh, not only just looking at new threats, but also getting into the underground and communicating with different people and finding out what was on different groups' radars and what they were targeting. How do you feel about, uh, you know, people working intelligence, getting involved in those groups to, to extract real intelligence, real actionable intelligence, as opposed to just watching the, the news or, or, or looking at CVEs? Uh, yeah, good question. Um, so, of course, uh, again, it's a gray area, right? So you can only do so much and stay within the legal uh, limits because um, you don't want to in, in any way to aid or abate, uh, you know, criminal groups. Um, but even without infiltrating the groups or uh, misrepresenting you know, yourself, you can still get lots of information from just observing, going to the forums, you know, and listening to the actors. I think in cybersecurity community, there is a tendency either to vilify uh, the ransomware actors or make fun of them. And um, I think that what we should do, we should actually listen to them more because usually your adversary uh, tells, tells about themselves, you know, uh, and uh, that may give you lots of valuable information. And for example, uh, we got lots and lots of good information from um, Russian hackers going and giving interviews to some Russian journalists as mm -hmm. well. Um, and um, in those interviews, you know, they reveal uh, who they are. Um, they um, like to talk about their intentions. They like to talk about their fears. Mm -hmm. uh, they like to talk about why they're doing it. And I think it is extremely valuable uh, because if we know the psychology of this phenomena of the ransomware, we can actually um, protect ourselves and protect our clients better. Uh, we can design systems that would work and not just uh, be in fear. Because right now, um, I don't like this trend that's going on when people are saying now uh, it's not the matter of uh, either, it's the matter of when, right? I think it's uh, defeatist not necessarily true. Absolutely. I've seen that quite a few times, actually. And um, I just got done working a really long ransomware case, um, helping people dig out from the ransomware. 
And it's interesting looking at the, I guess, the dissection of the actual incident where, you know, you had one group who was, you know, a very well-known nation state actor. And then you had multiple groups that were working in tandem with that same group. So it's not only just, you know, one group that, that is exfiltrating or running the ransomware. Sometimes there's multiple groups. And what really bothers me about ransomware is when people in the U.S., um, and security companies in the U.S. always point towards Russia and China as being the culprits. Um, and, you know, it's always a, a Russian ransomware group that ends up getting the, the rap for the, the uh, compromise. Um, but what people don't understand is that in the U.S., we do the same thing. We've been carrying out cyber warfare ops for, for ages now. Um, it's not just, uh, you know, uh, communist or, or Russia or China or whoever, it's everybody. Everybody has moved warfare into a cyber realm. Um, and that's one thing that frustrates me is we focus too much on which country was it? Well, it's not really, it, forget about the country. Let's talk about why it happened and why they were successful instead of putting blame on people. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you on that. So uh, although geopolitical uh, situation is important, um, uh, it's still very much of a people problem. Um, actually, um, I uh, showed the, in, in one of the panels that I did for the ransomware an example of how United States and companies, they actually seem to, to the hackers or to anybody who is trying to get the ransomware, right? So. Uh, from the viewpoint of uh, majority of the people uh, in the world right now, United States is extremely wealthy country. And the companies in the United States, they just swim in money. And that's the perception. Not only that, but the perception also is uh, that they're being arrogant in a way. So they're flaunting the money, you know, they're flaunting their capabilities. So it's there. Um, and uh, here, uh, comes a person uh, who doesn't have many opportunities in their life. Um, and if, uh, let's say it's Russia and United States, right? If Russia and United States are not in a good standing with each other, uh, then this person, uh, the potential adversary, they know that they're not gonna be extradited, that they're not gonna face any consequences, um, and they can actually do something to make money. And ease money from their viewpoint. Yeah, exactly. And I think that the economy, the world economy, plays a big part of it. You know, they they look at the U.S. as being wealthy and flaunting their money. And and I I, I saw the same thing when I was living overseas. Is the way that the U.S. portrayed in foreign news, and basically the way that these companies portray themselves, and they're they're making themselves targets basically. Um, and the arrogance, you know, the, the Western countries do have a tendency to, to have a bit of arrogance about them. Um, and, it, you know, you couple that with the pandemic and the world economy and uncertainty, and people are going to do what they need to do to survive. Um, and that's what I always say. Uh, but I found some really good information on ransomware groups and kind of, this is my theory. And, and I've talked to a couple people in the agency, the the CIA about this specific theory. And that is that ransomware groups really, there's, there's a tinge of, of a financial motivation. However, I think a lot of it has to do with intelligence gathering. I think that a lot of these ransomware groups ultimately 
are working for, you know, intelligence group within the government or, a, a, you know, consulting firm that's digging this intelligence. Um, China was a really good uh, example of that. Um, I recently saw a ransomware case where they didn't ask for ransom, although there was a note there with the URL to go to. They weren't worried about the ransom because as they were deploying this ransomware, they were also exfiltrating personal data of the executives and the stakeholders. Um, so it had less to do with trying to gain money off of the ransomware attack and more to do with building intelligence pictures and dossiers on specific individuals because it wasn't like a wide target of collection of, of you know, personal information. It was a very specific set of people that were being targeted. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, because traditionally you would think ransomware would be completely financial. Um, but I'm starting to see more and more of an intelligence gathering type operation along with the ransomware. Um, and also I've seen a lot of variations of old ransomware that's been used to kind of veil what was actually going on in the background. You know, whether, while people are fighting a ransomware, all their data is going out the back door that has nothing to do with financial. Um, and the agency seemed to think that that was pretty on point that what we're seeing is not really a, a run or, or a cash grab. It's more of a, so a government hires, you know, a ransomware group, ransomware group is going to make money off of it because that's their goal. But the ultimate goal is to get as much data about specific individuals or specific companies out of the company while all the chaos is going on. Have you seen that with Flashpoint? Have you seen that type of operation before? Yeah, that, that's a very interesting question. Uh, so uh, since uh, we do not, um, I cannot talk about specific cases here, right, right for obvious reasons, right. uh, but um, uh, about attribution, that's a very interesting point that you brought in, right? Lots of people, they want attribution. They want to know who exactly done it and why they did that. So, and that's where uh, things become murky. Uh, because as you said, it could be a case that the government uh, hired that particular group, but this group may, may just moonlight, you know, moonlight for, for money. Uh, the people that uh, wrote the ransomware, maybe not the same people who actually broke into the system. In fact, what we see at Flashpoint is that um, everything is very specialized. So there are people who specialize just in uh, finding the access into the network. Um, they are not interested in um, doing the ransomware. They're not interested in stealing the data. Uh, they're very specialized in finding this particular exploit that would get you into the network. What they do then, they would get this exploit and they would uh, put them um, online for sale. Uh, so, and then other people would buy it. They may resell it. They may, um, um, you know, use it uh, for their own malicious gains. Um, then there are ransomware writers. They specifically write that. Then there are affiliates. Uh, so if somebody wrote uh, a ransomware and they like how it works now, they want to rent it out, not just sell it, but rent it out. Then with the data, the exfiltrated data. So the trend now is double extortion, as they're saying, right? So first extortion is for the ransom, uh, for your data that are encrypted, and second is to not publish your data. But uh, there is no guarantee that uh, even if they're not published, they're not going anywhere else. So um, the, um, the actors may be double dipping, right? So they're getting money from the organizations and then they maybe sell it to their own government. 
you know, and in exchange, maybe government is not paying them money, but it's protecting them. So it gets very complicated. And I think that's where we should uh, think less in technical terms and more in the psychological and economical terms, uh, because uh, we may be creating this monster when they're thinking uh, that uh, they're doing everything possible to protect. Um, um, are we actually um, increasing the activity by our actions? Um, I'm curious to see uh, what you think about it. Yeah, so I'm against paying ransom. I, I think I think when you pay a ransom on a ransomware event, I think that you're letting them know that hey, you know, our data is more important than our money. So, you know, you hit us, we're going to pay you to get our data back. And that leaves the door open for them to come back again because they know that you're going to pay and they know that you have the money. Um, other instances I've seen, you know, like you said, it's, it's not just economical. Some of, the, some of the attacks I've seen also have been kind of like almost accidental, like they don't realize what network they're in. Um, and that gets confusing for them. And they put out, you know, like a, a ransom, like a huge ransom on a hospital. And people who live in the U.S. know that those hospitals don't make a lot of money. Um, really, the thing there is, is private information. Um, but there's a lot of state-run hospitals that, that don't have the budgets and don't have that free cash to, to pay ransoms, and they suffer. Um, but I do think that we feed into it quite a bit. We feed into the machine. Uh, the more we pay ransoms, um, the more that we try to pinpoint attribution you know, go back to the beginning of, you know, the internet and, and when attacks first started happening and everybody was focused on finding out the IP address of the attacker. And now currently you look at, you know, how attacks occur and nobody asks for an IP anymore because we know how easy it is to spoof that IP or to compromise a system and launch an attack from that system to make it look like somebody else. Um, and I think we're going to get to the same point with ransomware where, you know, looking at identification and attribution is not as important as why it happened and how we can how we can solve that problem. Um, but it's a global problem. A lot of people don't understand that. As the U.S. does do their own, you know, attack cyber warfare attacks. I mean, look at Stuxnet. Stuxnet's a good example of, of what happened. Um, no ransom involved, but we carry out the same ops. And you know, I, I sympathize with with companies that do get compromised. However, most of the companies that, that I look at who have been compromised, it's been really dumb mistakes, just really, really dumb mistakes that could have been prevented. Um, Multi-factor authentication, strong passwords, uh, you know, not buying off-the-shelf VPNs that are misconfigured. Uh, there's just a lot of things that people can do. Um, and it's always going to be, a, I think it's always going to be a tit for tat, right? It's always going to be launching attacks back and forth. And, and it reminds me of those maps, uh, like the Norse maps where it shows the real time attacks going on and, and all that nonsense. Um, yeah, I do think, I, I agree. I think we feed the machine quite a bit. Um, it, so with that same sentiment, you know, feeding the machine, what, what are your ideas on how to slow down that machine or to break that machine? Yeah, I'm glad that you asked. So, um, and I'm going to mention something that you just said recently about it seems like um, some of the attackers don't know what they're doing. Uh, yes, and that's, that's the case. Um, so there is a thing that is called ransomware as a service. So the people that um, are very, very smart, 
they create the ransomware itself, right? They write the program. So those are the programmers, the brains. Uh, then there are marketing people who are selling it on the forums uh, or anywhere else in the illicit communities. And then there are uh, people that just want to do business. They may not know anything about the network, about the programming, even about the data. And because a ransomware as a service, such a good business, it is easy to do, uh, big money, very anonymous. So uh, for anybody who wants to make an easy money that way, and they know they're not going to get caught because they're in a different country, uh, they can get into this business. Uh, so what they do, they uh, purchase this uh, ransomware, which is pretty much plug and play, and they purchase access to the networks. And it's usually not just one network. If somebody thinks that the adversaries, just, they're just planning to get into a particular network, and like, let's say it's a hospital, you know, and they try to find a way. No, that's not how it's happening. Uh, somebody uh, writes an exploit, then uh, they do the whole spray and pray. So, and then they sell it. They don't know what they're selling because it's a bulk. So the person who is buying it, they don't know what they're buying. Uh, what they do, they push this ransomware uh, or this exploit to um, every network that they bought. And they get somewhere, right? So when they get there, that's where they might realize where they are or they might not. So it all depends on the sophistication of the attacker. So, um, uh, and that's where uh, comes the disparity where these um, actors, we hear they say, that they're not going to attack hospitals, they're not going to attack anything that is charity organization. So pretty much they um, portray themselves as being noble because they have certain, you know, moral qualities and they might do, you know. Um, people like to laugh about it and say that, you know, there is no honor among thieves, but uh, uh, that's maybe not necessarily true, you know. But the fact that they sell their product to somebody else who might not have the same morals as they do, uh, produces cases like that, like with the hospital. Uh, so the most recent uh, colonial pipeline attack, right? Um, you probably know that attackers then uh, came out and said, yeah, sorry we did that, uh, we didn't mean to, you know, and that's very unusual for the attackers, right? So that's uh, flabbergasted lots of people. But there is actually a very logical explanation. And I just want to preface it that that's my explanation, but I think it is probably correct. Uh, so um, because those same actors, they went and they uh, gave interview <laughs> to one of the Russian um, journalists. And what they were saying is they do not want a high publicity attack. So uh, what actually happened is that it was an affiliate who didn't know where they went. And um, when they did, they thought, oh, it's cool. It's a large company and they're gonna pay lots of money. They didn't think that because it is uh, such an important company, they have connections um, on the hill, you know, and then it's gonna become um, an issue between countries. Uh, so I think that's what happened because, as you mentioned before, uh, ransomware is probably not their day job. It's probably their moonlight, right? So, and they um, 
most likely connected to the government somehow, they got a phone call. They probably got a phone call that says, you know, guys, you overstepped. Don't do that. We do not want war because, you know, you ask um, for money. Um, and that's what I think happened. So um, the question comes from here. Can we control? Uh, yes, we can. Because actually in the colonial pipeline, we have two things that we haven't seen happening with other ransomware attacks. First of all, we got an apology. So, and we got an evidence that um, um, actors didn't wanna do that, that that was a mistake, right? And second of all, the money were recovered. So now uh, we know that the, there are capabilities of tracing the wallet, you know, tracing the payments, um, and um, we can influence the policy. Um, an interesting thing is that um, those same hackers in the interview, they said uh, the tension between our two countries, between Russia and the United States, actually helps us. It helps us a lot. As long as there is tension, there is no uh, extradition or there is uh, nothing in terms of us being punished for what we do. Um, that's why I think we have Russian and Chinese hackers as we talked at the beginning, right? Because if you are gonna be doing the same and reside in the United States, uh, there is almost 100% chance that you're gonna be caught within a few months. So, and I think we need to rethink our policies. Uh, we need to rethink uh, how we relate to each other. Uh, the one main reason why the ransomware monster became so big it's because, and I'm going to say something controversial here, I think because it is a good business for everybody involved. It's good business for uh, ransomware actors, and it is also a good business for the company. I'm going to explain myself here why I think it is a good business. Um, it is, and I don't know why we came to that but it seems that it is cheaper for the companies to pay the ransom than to pay for the specialists to patch all the vulnerabilities, to patch all the holes and create 100% security. Why we are here, it is a good question. And I think that's where the discussion has to start. Yeah, I totally agree. So I have my theories when it comes to cyber, cyber insurance as well, liability insurance. Um, a lot of the insurance company I've seen, when an incident happens, it's almost as if they're telling the incident responding team, which is a different company, what to do and how to do it. And they focus on communication with the ransomware group, right? Uh, and there was one incident um, that I heard uh, the incident responders came back and said, okay, it's uh, getting close to five o'clock and the ransomware group, they'll be finished at five o'clock and we won't be able to contact them. And I had to laugh at that. You know, it just, it's such a business. It's a, such a professional business and they've really honed their skills. It, it runs just like a company, but I have a hard time not believing that some of these cyber insurance companies, you know, there's, there's a bad company in, in every batch of companies, just like there's a bad person in every big group of people. Right. And I, I, I hate this theory, but I can't help but think it's true is that some of these cyber insurance companies have relationships with those cyber actors, those, those ransomware actors. 
Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a nasty chain. It's a nasty chain of events that everybody gets paid, but you're right. It, it does. It's a good business model. Um, you know, the, the ransomware group makes their money with ransom. The cyber insurance, you know, call, you know, charges huge premiums to be covered. And then the company has to hire an incident response team based on what the cyber insurance team tells them they have to do. So everybody gets paid except for the company that got hit. And I, that's, I think it's really sad, but it's true. It's, it's a working business model. Um, you know, it's interesting you brought up uh, Colonial Pipeline as well um, and, and what happened there. And I think that, you know, when we talk about how we need to address the situation, how we need to combat ransomware, you know, obviously paying ransom is not going to help. Um, cyber insurance is not the answer either, uh, because that gives everybody a, you know, kind of a security blanket where, oh, we don't have to be 100% secure because if we do get hit, you know, we always have insurance. So that increases the risk just within itself. So my theory is that we need to be more aggressive when it comes to combating ransomware instead of just, you know, putting out indictments for, for ransomware groups, which will never be, they'll never be extradited. We need to go after the ransomware groups themselves and after their networks. If you can infiltrate that network, um, you could take down the infrastructure. Yeah, they'll move to another piece of infrastructure or build a new infrastructure, but the same happens when we get hit with ransomware, we have to rebuild. So my theory is the only way to really stop these gangs is to get involved and play the game, um, infiltrate their networks, take over their networks, uh, tear down the infrastructure that keeps them going. Just like we saw, um, it wasn't too long ago, there was a call center in India that they were scamming people out of you know tons of money and they had a, a surveillance system and a guy hacked into the surveillance system and got a foothold in this network and was able to turn over the information to law enforcement and to shut down that, that, that group. So I think the same thing needs to be done in ransomware is that, you know, select group of people need to go in and infiltrate those ransomware networks and get a foothold and collect all the data that we can and shut them down. I mean, that, that's my opinion. And it kind of goes along with the hack back, the, the idea of hacking back. Everybody fights against and, oh, it's not moral, it's not ethical. But we're dealing with people who aren't ethical, that, that don't have, you know, your best interest in mind. Um, so I think an aggressive approach is probably the only way that we're really going to solve that problem. Uh, that's uh, a very interesting opinion. I think it's probably a little bit more complicated than that, because if you're going to try and hack back into the systems that are... Um, that belong to a foreign entity, foreign country, that's where it, it gets into very gray area. Um, I think the government is trying to do uh, something similar uh, now um, with um, um, currency exchange centers, uh, with the blockchain, uh, you know, um, mixers, etc. But they try to do it uh, with the, the monetary compensation. Um, so I think uh, how United States done things uh, that usually work uh, is the, with the emphasis of, on money. So if, um, if you're going to uh, put big fines on any centers that would uh, make it easier for hackers to either hide the money you know, or uh, anonymize uh, in any way, uh, then it's not gonna be profitable. Uh, and since it's the business, I think making something not profitable would probably work. 
with the hug back, um, the, um, the danger here is escalation. You know, uh, every time when you engage in a conflict and you escalate, the other party would escalate back. Um, <clears throat> so um, I'm not sure if, if that's gonna solve the problem. It might uh, create a, a cyber warfare and that's not, not a good consequence. Of course, uh, this, this problem is a big one, um, but I think we should start thinking about it and talking about it, you know, because that's where uh, the solutions uh, um, come from, um, because there are multitude of solutions that are on the spectrum between, you know, zero trust and hacking back. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a balancing act, I think. Um, you know, when you look at the FBI's most wanted list, and this is, I always check it out probably once a month, just to see who's popped up on the list. Um, and you look at it, and it's always Chinese or Russian military officers from the GRU. And it's like, first of all, that's a waste of time to even put them on the most wanted list because you know you'll never indict them. You know that you'll never extradite them. So, I mean, they're just wasting their time with that. Um, but I know that other groups, uh, especially, I guess, rival groups, will put people in each other's groups to tear them down. Um, and, you know, I'm sure the government is, is proactively doing that now with, with some of the ransomware groups. But like you said, you know, it, it's a business model and the way that they operate, I mean, it's almost like Microsoft. You know, you have your call center in case you have questions about the, the ransomware. I mean, it's, it's crazy to see where we've came from the beginning of the internet to fighting botnets and botnets was a big thing back then. And now we're fighting ransomware and it's no longer, you know, the hooded people that are, that are causing the problems. It's legitimate companies. Like they set up legitimate companies with bank accounts and call centers and they invest time and money in this. This is not like an overnight, you know, production. Um, so what, what do you think the, the, um, I guess the temperament, um, in Russia is towards ransomware. Um, do, do you see ransomware attacks within Russia, let's say from foreign countries like the U S or, or, you know, from England or whatever, or is it strictly, you know, you only see the actors working in foreign countries and not so much within Russia? Uh, so yeah, good question. Uh, actually, very interesting one, because um, I uh, looked at the, so many ransomware families that uh, generated from Russia or former, former, United, uh, former Soviet Union, and majority of them have a protection against being deployed in um, any of the machines that might belong to a person uh, who lives in Russia. So they do not put ransomware on their own people. Um, and the reason being is, again, that the United States and Western Europe is seen as this um, uh, very rich, very affu affluent, uh, capitalistic country. And the, um, <clears throat> the sentiment of capitalism is very interesting, right, because um, former Soviet Union was under the communist regime for 70 years, over 70 years. And people didn't like it that much. Uh, but, you know, when it all fell down, uh, we had our Wild West time, you know, um, and people know what the wild capitalism is. And I think what's going on in the United States right now, uh, they're seeing is as people 
his companies being greedy, you know, so it's not a positive thing as well. Um, I'm pretty sure that the majority of the people is not liking what's going on right now, right? Uh, with the economic situation, et cetera, when the rich people are getting richer and, and the poor people getting poorer. So there gotta be some common ground. But when you are looking uh, at the other and you make them as the other, and they're, uh, in your view, they're very rich and arrogant. There is no moral dilemma of whether you can take their money uh, and run or not. You know, it's like uh, <clears throat> we have this uh, sheriff of Notre Dame, you know, uh, that is very bad and very rich. Uh, and then we have Robin Hood that is uh, poor and uh, just gives money to people who need that. So that's how they see it. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, when you talk about, you know, the rich getting richer and the poor getting poor, you know, even within the U.S., the way that some people like myself look at the government is they've, you know, gone out of control. Um, they're, you know, they take people's freedoms and, you know, they tend to continue to get rich while everybody else struggles. Um, so it's not really that different than, let's say, the way that Russia views the U.S. and U.S. companies. There's people here in the U.S. that have the same sentiment. Um but the sad thing is, so like when Russia fell, a lot of the uh, scientists and mathematicians and people lost their jobs because they were working for the regime. Um, and once the, the country fell, once that communist regime fell, then all of those scientists, all those mathematicians, all those computer scientists had no jobs. And so what's the natural thing to do? I'm going to continue doing what I know how to do to make money. And I think that's where the transition into hacking and into ransomware, all that occurred, because, you know, it, any country, you know, when you look at another country and see how well they're doing and, and how stable they are, and you look at your own country and you're like, wow, you know, why can't we have that? And what do I need to do to, do to have that life? Um, I think that's a pretty, a pretty common uh, sentiment in any country. And even in the U.S., you know, coming back to the U.S., I had nothing. I had no bank account. I had no place to go. Basically, you know, with nothing. I had a suitcase. That was it. Um, and I look at people in the U.S. and, you know, they tons of money, huge houses, um, just ridiculous amounts of, of things that they own. Um, and I always thought, you know, how come I can't ever achieve that? Um, how come they have all the money? How come I have to struggle? Uh, and, it, and it sucks because people in the government, especially U.S. government, you look at their salaries, you look at what they get away with, and that fuels a lot of the crime, not only just in the U.S., but globally. Um, because I think we're on that tail end of being a superpower. You know, they always say that, every kingdom or every, you know, superpower ends up imploding on itself, like Babylon and like, uh, you know, like uh, Rome and, and stuff like that. Those big enterprises, enterprises always collapse on each, on themselves. So I think we're nearing the end of that, that I guess, reign or whatever. Um, and it's sad as an American looking at that, watching, you know, the struggle within the government and, you know, the people fighting against what they, what they deserve and what they're actually getting. It's pretty sad, but I think under any circumstance, when people need money, they're going to do what they know how to do. Um, and, you know, some of the Russian hackers that, that I've been in contact with and, and that I've worked with are very bright. They spend their days, their time, you know, 24 hours a day, if they have to, learning how to code. They're hungry for that information. And here, a lot of people take it for, take it for granted. Um, so, yeah, like the APT groups are very interesting as well. 
And, you know, along with ransomware, the APT groups really aren't focused so much on ransomware. They're more focused on disruption and, you know, taking, taking advantage of the infrastructure. Um, and really the ransomware gangs don't really worry me as much as the events or the incidents where a hacker gets into critical infrastructure and just kind of looks around. Um, that to me is scarier than someone coming into your network and holding your network for ransom, um, because that shows true intent. They're after one thing and one thing only. The other, you know, getting into critical infrastructure or into transportation or the food supply and not doing anything and not deploying any kind of tools. It's like, wait a minute, this is this a warm up for a bigger attack? Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, very, very interesting question. So um, uh, that that's true. That, and that is very scary. And I think if you're, uh, if you're going to uh, look at the truth of the situation is our critical infrastructure is not protected. So uh, um, and um, the adversaries most likely already been there and, and have uh, the back doors because we know how somebody who had no intention to get into something like that. They can just get there by accident. Think about if somebody uh, you know, actually has an intention. So uh, ransomware is very big right now, you know, and it's, it's a big thing, big shiny thing, because um, it's related to money. But the actual scary stuff, of course, it flies under the radar. Um, so, um, Yes, if you, if you ask me, uh, do I worry about the World War III and it's starting with cyber? For sure, um, for sure. Um, that's why I think um, the escalation due to ransomware is so scary uh, because you know we don't want to escalate and I don't think that anybody wants to escalate. So uh, just being able to get into each other's infrastructure it's a power game, and that's, I think, every major company is playing it. United States is doing it to Russia, to China. China is doing it to Russia, to the United States. You know, we have these three major players that uh, it's like uh, um, how they call it the Mexican standoff, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> that's where the balance lies. So um, I think that we all should work over peace um, and um, um, it scares me a lot when some kind of government official comes out you know and they come up with sanctions or escalation of any sort of thing mm -hmm. because balance is very precarious right now uh, so Russia has been economically sanctioned mm -hmm. um, and um, because I read Russian news you know and uh, I'm in contact with people who live there just you know my relatives so the general sentiment is they're laughing about those sanctions, mm. you know, and uh, while they're laughing, they're building their own infrastructure, they're building their own internet, they're building their own currencies, you know, uh, they're building um, all sorts of weapons. Uh, and uh, so I think just flexing uh, from the, uh, you know, from the United States, it, it's not good. Um, yeah. Yeah, the, the sanctions have always been a joke. Um, when you look at how the U.S. put sanctions on China or on North Korea, um, just recently that that happened. And the first thing they did was go out and try to break into Bitcoin wallets and deploy, uh, you know, cryptocurrency ransomware. You know, it's like 
those, those threats are very, are very empty. Um, and especially like with Democrats, you know, right now we have a Democrat in the office and they, they're good at, you know, putting words on paper, but not actually putting any action behind the words. And people know that. And, you know, when, when we sanction like Iran or we sanction North Korea, they don't really care. Um, they're going to get their money one way or another, and they'll trade, they'll trade with somebody else. Um, to be honest, you know, when you look at the, the allied countries, we're not as strong as we used to be and the relationships aren't as strong. Um, you saw that with Biden and a lot of the, the countries that we were allies with turning their backs on Biden because of his failure of the pullout in Afghanistan. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of instability globally, I think, and, and geopolitically um, that could cause some, some disruption. Uh, but I do think that the next war will be started on the internet. I, th- I think something will happen um, probably within the next 10 to 15 years that will spark some sort of conflict and hopefully we can de-escalate. But the more that we see infrastructure attacks, the more we see governments being targeted and widespread um, attacks like solar winds, I think that we're setting the stage for that next realm of battle, which I'm pretty sure will start on the ethereal realm, on the cyber realm. Um, so that's, uh, that's about all I have. It's, it's almost the end of the hour. And uh, is there anything that, that you want to add or questions you want to ask me or anything like that? Yeah, I wanted to ask you a question uh, about uh, your feelings uh, since you were born in Russia. Um, you know, um, how do you feel um, about uh, what's going on right now, you know, with APT groups from Russia and how would you feel um, if the war is going to break up, you know, or if um, there's going to be an escalation or conflict, let's say, um, you know, I think before the war is going to start, uh, mm. Russia is going to do the separation move, like, like China just did, right? They, uh, there is no Bitcoin in China, so they solved their ransomware problem. Um, so um, how are you going to feel? Um, well, so actually, I was born in the U.S., um, I am part Russian now, but I was born here in the U.S. Uh, but to be honest with you, um, looking at the way that the U.S. treats its people and specifically the way the U.S. treated me and, and took away pretty much all my freedom, um, other countries were more, uh, I guess, forgiving and willing to help me out and support me. Uh, my own country wouldn't do that. And my sentiment is if something like that were to happen, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, for me to find any sympathy for the U.S. Um, because I, I know their games, I know their politics, I know firsthand what we do in you know military opposition and during wartime. Um, and I can honestly say that uh, I probably will not support them. Um, and little known fact, and, and this may you know turn a lot of people's heads, but I'm actually part of the Communist Party USA. I'm actually a member. Um, I believe in that and, you know, that I'm devout to it. And that's the form of government that I think that that we need to go to. Um, That way, nobody's left behind. Uh, Because right now, the people who have, have more. And the people who don't, uh, your lifespan is shorter. Um, You're not entitled to to the things that the rich rich can have. Um, Take COVID, for example. When I was in the hospital with COVID, I had just gotten back to the U.S. I had nothing. And my treatment 
in the hospital was vastly different than a patient who had insurance. Um, they were getting the antibodies. They were getting better, quicker. I didn't get that same treatment. I got them treating my symptoms and hoping it'll go away. So there's a lot of things in the US I don't agree with. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would not, I wouldn't support them if they went to war with another country right now, uh, because they have their own problems internally. And to me, that's a slap in the face to the people struggling in the US when they go to war with another country. Because if you can't sort your own problems out at home, don't go starting some somewhere else. That's Yeah, I completely agree with that. Yeah. yeah. I think the problems at home are now more pressing. Um, yeah, in regards to the communists, I still, I'm not sure what I think, you know, because I lived it. Mm -hmm. I didn't like it. Right. Um, I still, I'm not sure what went wrong, why it went so, so wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and um, although, you know, the sentiment is great. Um, I think that, um, like my general sentiment in regards to everything nowadays is that we need to place more um, emphasis on ethics, mm -hmm. on civics, and on understanding ourselves as humans uh, and calming down our nervous system. Right. Uh, from fight and flight. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, you know, as far as like people across the world, it's funny because I can talk to uh, friends in Russia and we don't have a problem. We don't have conflict. Um, so why must the governments have conflict? You know, they're nothing but a representation of the people. The people don't have a problem. It's the governments that do. And the reason why you said it earlier, it's all this, it's all money. You know, it's yes, great. Money, greed, and power drives everything. Well, Anya, I appreciate you being on the show. Thanks for accepting the invitation. It was a very interesting talk. And uh, you're welcome back anytime. So thank you so much, Mike. Absolutely. Uh, until next time, I'll see you later and uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you again. Bye. Bye.